0: Okay, welcome everybody. Thank you for joining me this evening for our BTOG webinar, this time on advanced radiotherapy techniques. And what we're hoping to cover tonight is some important tips and tricks for challenging uh, cases. So I'd like to thank Dawn and Gina who've really helped put this together and welcome on behalf of the whole BTOG team uh, for this evening's uh, programme. So just a bit of housekeeping, please do submit any questions um, as you think of them by typing them into the control panel. uh, And I'll be storing all of these up for the Q&A at the end of each of the three presentations. Um, Also following um, this evening's webinar, um, you'll be sent an email for your feedback, which we um, really like to receive so we can better improve um, on further webinars going forwards. Once you've sent in your feedback, um, you'll be sent your certificate of attendance. Um, and for any of your colleagues who haven't been able to join us this evening, who would be interested in looking at this online, um, please um, do remind them that if they access it in the next four weeks and use this uh, RCP approval code, they can use it uh, for their CPD diary as well. So this is the lineup for this evening. We've got three talks uh, looking at advanced radiotherapy tips and tricks. Firstly, in early stage disease, then in locally advanced disease. And then finally, um, all we need to know about SRS in the metastatic um, setting. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Matthew Hatton, our first speaker. Um, he's a consultant and honorary professor at Western Park. And many of you will know him well. So I'm going to hand over him to him now to give us some tips and tricks on what he's learned with the Sabre rollout um, for lung stereotactic treatment. Thank you, Matthew.
1: Thank you very much, Fiona, um, and thank you to uh, Beathove for the invitation. So, what I'll be covering is, um, some, is some information from the Rollout program um, that's introduced lung cancer Sabre to all centres across England. Part of that was, uh, sorry, these are my disclosures. So, part of the requirement was that there was a QA program to ensure that Sabre is delivered to a satisfactory quality. My role in that programme, I have to say, is extremely modest. And you can see from this slide, that an awful lot of organisations were involved. And I will give my particular thanks to Patty, who did an awful lot of work, particularly on the QA side, and helped me prepare these slides. So the Sabre expansion programme was set up. So ensure that all English radiotherapy centers were going to be able to deliver Sabre treatment, both for lung primaries and also potentially for lung oligometastasis. This was an NHS England initiative and they have, I think, achieved the goal. And I think all centers are now capable of delivering Sabre. Networks were involved to draw up plans for service provision across regions and the TQA group coordinated a radiotherapy QA programme um, with the help of the UK Sabre Consortium, who supported the outlying reviews and uh, critiqued the um, volumes coming in. In addition, there was a dosimetric audit, which was run by the Na- National Physics Laboratory. And there is a mentoring programme with the CTE centres mentoring the newer centres um, to help them on their way with a few little tips, day-to-day running of a Sabre service. So just thinking and focusing on the RTTQA programme, there was essentially four components. A questionnaire to assess what um, the centre had in place in terms of equipment and resources, and what they might need to get in place to ensure that a Sabre could be delivered safely and effectively. There was a benchmarking exercise for the oncologists to check on their ability to contour target volumes and the organs at risk. And there was a similar planning benchmark process for the physicists and uh, treatment planners to ensure that um, coverage of target volumes was optimal and sparing of organs at risk um, also optimal. And finally, as mentioned before, there was a dosimetric audit. So what this um, talk very much focuses on really is that outlining benchmark. So just to go through what the benchmarking exercise was, the RTQA sent out um, some packs with documents giving a clinical scenario, um, scans, um, 4D scan with um, phases and a average image and a MIP image and some instructions on what and how to contour. So they wanted in return um, some structures, targets, the GTV, MIP, and ITV, expanded into a PTV, and a particular focus on organs at risk. So brachial plexus, the bronchial proximal bronchial structures, trachea, the heart, the esophagus, spinal cord, and normal lungs and chest wall. The aim was to ensure that two clinicians at each centre passed the QA exercise, and those clinicians were enabled to cascade training to others within the centre that required it. So in terms of numbers, 24 centres took part in this SEP programme, and 47 clinicians have been assessed and QA'd. The pass rate on first submission, unfortunately, it was very low. I'm afraid that's as much detail as I can give, because I think they're preparing some further presentations at the UK Sabre Consortium meeting, and hopefully perhaps at the BTOG meeting in, in January. And When we're talking about pass rates here, what I'm talking about is not necessarily the minor deviations that we will all see in our day-to-day practice, but major deviations. So changes or things that were far removed from what was ideal. So in terms of instructions, um, centers were asked that they generate an ITV according to the local practice. So if they were using breath-hold techniques to carry on using breath-hold techniques, carry on doing things that they're familiar with, and then grow GTVs um, using the average um, scan. Other centers that were using um, other Methods for controlling a breathing were encouraged to do those and contouring on the MIP and including individual um, breathing phases. So eventually you would get a structure um, recorded on the average it, that would, could be grown into a PTV. So looking at some of the re- results. So this is the primary tumor that. Um, centres were asked to outline. You will note it was a relatively straightforward tumour and there were no speculations. The general criticism is that centres clinicians tended to under contour. So although this looks very nice in these images, what you need to remember is that these images are average images and are not really taking into account tumour motion. So what you have in general as we go through these slides, the Red contour will be the sort of agreed gold standard contour and the yellow contours are examples of some of those uh, contours submitted by clinicians from the various centres. So not everyone under contour. Uh, One or two people got a little over enthusiastic. The main problem I think with over contouring was very much sort of contouring of vessels so I think this is something that can be a little tricky, distinguishing where the tumour stops and where vessels coming into, into, into and around the tumour are. And that's something that hopefully people will get more familiar with, with practice. But just, I think, something to be very wary of when you're starting out contouring in this situation. So going on to think about organs at risk, the one that people have found most difficult may not be surprising and that's the brachial plexus so in this sort of instruction pack it was asked that you contour brachial plexus each brachial plexus separately that the contours start from the foramen of c5 6 7 8 and t1 and terminate in the region of the media limit of the second rib suggested that you use a diameter tool of five to six millimeters and start contouring at the foramen, and then continue out. Um, remembering that the brachial plexus tends to go through space between the anterior and middle scalene muscles. What these instructions were modified a little bit, I think, as we went along um, because it was realized that it was actually very difficult to see the brachial plexus itself. And centers were advised that they could use the vascular structures, the subclavian neurovascular bundle, to as a surrogate, and then continue, as we said, to the sort of first, second rib that would serve as the sort of lateral limit of the brachial plexus structure. So what was found was, I think, that in most cases, the brachial plexus structure is under-contoured. Um, People, I think understandable for people of a thoracic disposition, struggled to know where the scalene muscles were. So their early or their higher contours tended to be a bit posterior to where the, the gap between the anterior and the middle scalene muscles. And inferiorly, then people were not really contouring the subclavian neurovascular bundle, which was suggested as the surrogate to the brachial plexus. I think with experience, you may be able to start contouring the brachial plexus itself, but that, I think, is something that comes with experience, and I suspect quite a lot of experience. So using the surrogates, using the brachia, the um, vascular structures, is probably a very sensible thing, certainly, in your first few years of delivering Sabre treatments. Every now and again the plexus structures were over contoured, um, this being an example. Moving on to proximal bronchial structures, so the instructions here were to contour using mediastinal windows and to include the cartilage in your structure. The tracheal um, proximal bronchus border has been set at two centimeters above the main carina. And then you contour approximately to include the lower part of the trachea, the carina, the main stem bronchi, right, left, upper lobe, intermedius, uh, lingular, middle lobe bronchus and lower lobe bronchus. The contouring of the bronchus should be ending at the site of the segmental bifurcation. And what probably is needed when you're contouring this structure is the ability to switch from mediastinal windows into lung windows, particularly when you're getting towards segmental bifurcations. they're much easier seen on lung windowing. So here the experience I think was mixed. So we saw examples of both under contouring and over contouring the structure. The thing people, I think, found most difficult was identifying these segmental bifurcations and either taking the contour up to them or, in some cases, the contour would extend past. Again, people were not terribly good at the um, junction between the trachea and the main bronchus. That was often placed incorrectly. Another example here, I think, is probably an example of under contouring. So if you take the red as your sort of gold standard, here you see someone has probably been contouring the ins- uh, internal volume of the, trich- the main bronchus. So the airway itself, rather than the bronchial walls. I think that's just something to, to be wary of and to try and remember as going forward. Thinking next about the heart and the great vessel outlining. Again, the suggestion is this is contoured in a mediastinal window setting. And the heart contour is something that we've been doing for for long periods of time now. And you're contouring the essentially contouring the pericardial sac. The great vessels are contoured to include the walls and the muscular layers. So again, you're not just contouring the lumen of the great vessels. Heart border superiorly should be to include really the top of the pulmonary artery. Inferiorly, the heart border is the apex where it's starting to blend into the diaphragm. Major vessels should include the inferior vena cava, and the pulmonary arteries should be excluded below the main bronchus. So so the difficulty that we saw here was really the superior aspect of the heart bringing that contour up to the top and include the top of the pulmonary artery and to remember that the pericardium does encompass some of the great vessels. So there's an area where the great vessels are still within the pericardium and therefore within the cardiac volume. So these illustrations I think show that so again you've got the red contour as the pericardial contour and you'll see that some centers have contoured the vessels separately and used the great vessel structure rather than the heart structure so a similar sort of illustration so again red is contouring the the pericardium and again you're seeing that In yellow, the cardiac volume that had been submitted here is under-contoured and in the orangey colour there they've contoured some of the structure as um, a great vessel. Esophagus and tracheal outlining was generally good. Uh, The advice was again to contour contour mediastinal windows. Superiorly to be starting at the bottom edge of the cricoid cartilage, and then extending that contour down to two centimeters above the main carina. The esophagus needed to be contoured to ensure that all muscle layers, the outer facet ad- adventitia, were included. Again, starting at the same superior point, lower edge of the cricoid cartilage, and continuing down to the gastroesophageal junction. So, in general, we saw lots of more minor deviations, they tended to be under contouring, so you're tending to have slightly smaller volumes, the full muscle wall not being included, and I think that was for both the esophagus and for trachea. A couple of examples there, again, the red being the sort of gold standard, and the yellow being some of the submitted contours done by uh, members of centers. I think it's probably a little more clear on the tracheal illustration, where you see in this example, the red does include the tracheal wall, whereas the yellow contour there really has contoured around the lumen. So I think um, I will be drawing to a close at that stage. The only other thing I've been asked to mention is um, in terms of lung contouring, which is generally good, often because I suspect that's automatic, but some centers did still include within their lung contour, the ITV, the hilum, the main bronchus, Those do, those structures do need to be excluded from a lung contour. So I think at this point, I shall hand back to Fiona. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Matthew, um, and for such a concise overview. And also to Patty, even though she's probably not on the call for all those lovely pictures um, she's provided. Um, I mean, clearly this is, you know, I think it highlights the complexity of the technique we're trying to roll out around um, Britain, not just some of the complexity of the 4D in relation to the primary tumour, but structures that we wouldn't normally contact in the stage three setting, like the proximal bronchial tree and the brachial plexus. Um, How do you think we should best ensure the quality of plans going going forward now that this hopeful learning curve has um, got all centres quality assured?
1: I think it has to be through a process of peer review. Um, I think uh, clearly peer review within centres. So those who are developing the techniques can hopefully bring on the next generation. But I think there is um, probably a role here for peer review across a network. So that you have that extra expertise and maybe you're exploring some of these new platforms, things like ProNow, that may offer you that chance to do it um, offline, so to speak, so that you can do your volumes, you can submit, you can call in others from the network when they have a chance just to check your volumes and and, uh, mutual learning, really.
0: Thank you, Matthew. Um, We haven't actually got any questions um, in from the audience. Again, please, if you have got questions for Matthew, Corinne or or, or Liam, do um, bring them into the the control panel so I can see your questions. Just one last question before we move on. I think part of the problem or part of the issue is that internationally, we've got a number of different um, atlases, contouring atlases, whether they're different thoracic atlases or whether it's how... The differences between how the thoracic people um, outline the brachial plexus compared to maybe the head and neck team. Um, how much of an issue do you think this is? I, I know we provided our own, in this case, our own sort of guidelines, which you know may maybe we needed more detail in, um, and maybe we could revise. But how much of an issue do you think it is that we've got a number of different international atlases out there?
1: I think what saw through this program was that things people had been familiar with contouring the esophagus the heart etc then generally they were quite good I think the one exception with the heart is is that superior border I think um, people have got used and I think this is an evolution of all these different atlases that have been out there Mm -hmm. over time I think our superior heart border has gradually risen and so if you learnt your sort of heart contouring 10, 10 years ago then you're not quite doing what is, is considered standard. Um, so I think it, it is a process. I think we do need to try and get these um, atlases all joined up so that internationally we're doing the same thing. But um, in the terms of the UK, I think we now do have a benchmark that hopefully people are getting familiar with. And if we can stick with that, um, then hopefully we'll have a fairly uniform um, approach across uh, at least England, but hopefully Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland will be joining us.
0: That's great. Thank you very much, Matthew, for your, your time and expertise this evening. Um, Thank it you. now gives me great pleasure to introduce Professor Corinne um, who who um, is well known to, I'm sure, many of you on the call from the Christie and University of, of, of Manchester. Thank you, Corinne.
2: Thanks Fiona and it's a real pleasure to be with you tonight. Thanks to BTOC for the invitation. So I'm going to talk about advanced radiotherapy techniques to treat large volumes radically. These are my disclosures. So, These are some of the scenarios that I'm going to talk about. So obviously on the left-hand side, large primary tumors, on the right-hand side, tumors with contralateral lymph nodes. And then at the bottom, you have examples of patients who have at the same time, large tumors, but also multiple mediastinal lymph nodes, including the supraclavicular fossa, or in some cases, even uh, both sides of the neck. So I'm going to ask five questions within this talk. The first one is what is the impact of volume of, on prognosis? And the very first study that I'm aware of that looked at the impact of tumor volume on prognosis is this prospective study from TROG that included over 500 patients with stage 1 to 3 non small lung cancer treated with curative intent. And what they showed, as you can see from the graph on the left-hand side, is that the tumor volume is um, a prognostic for survival. Um, That was the case certainly in a univariate analysis, but when they adjusted for other factors, such as the T stage, this was not significant anymore. They also looked at uh, the impact of tumor volume uh, according according to um, the, the time from treatment and they showed that the larger volume adversely affect outcome only within the first 18 months. And that is the graph on the, in the middle, not after 18 months. And the overall conclusion uh, of this uh, paper is that larger tumor size alone should not by itself exclude patients from curative chemoradiotherapy treatment, which I completely agree with. Now we do have some very good data from RTOG 0617, so you will all be familiar with this study, uh, which was actually updated in JCO in 2019, including uh, an update for multivariate analysis, which shows that one of the most uh, strongly prognostic factor is the PTV, uh, as well as the heart D5. And it's important to say that they went through an exercise of recontouring all of the hearts uh, centrally Um, to perform this analysis. And as Matthew pointed out, there can be major variation, which they did observe in this study. So um, with a uniform way of contouring the heart, the heart D5 is also very prognostic, as well as the PTV. And then in Manchester, we have done over the last few years a lot of research on the impact of dose to the heart. And we have identified in this large image-based data mining analysis of over 1,100 patients treated with 55 gray in 20 fractions that the the dose to the base of the heart is associated with poor survival, but also in this series, the tumor size was associated when taking into account other confounding factors with poor prognosis. The second question that I'd like to ask is, what is the outcome of patients with large volume disease treated radically? So we have a a series from uh, the Netherlands, a retrospective series, single center of stage three patients treated with chemoradiotherapy, concurrent chemoradiotherapy. They defined large volume as PTV of more than 700 CC and in this group of almost 100 patients, they had also N3 uh, disease. And they also looked at a smaller cohort of 23 patients with N3 disease but this time PTV of less than 700 cc. And you can see on the graph on the left-hand side, uh, the patients with PTV of more than 700 cc with or without end disease had a significantly shorter overall survival compared to patients with smaller volume disease. And you can see the corresponding median survival. Similar results if they, when they looked at a cohort of only stage three patients. What is interesting from this analysis, however, is that they showed that long-term survivors with PTV of more than 700 CC were observed. 24% of those patients without N3 and 37% with N3 were alive at five years, which shows that actually you know, this you know, radical intent treatment can be beneficial. Now, you may ask the question of what's the impact of these treatments uh, on uh, toxicity. Well, as expected, a third of the patients developed severe uh, esophagitis, and 7% of the patients uh, sadly died as a result of their treatment. All of these deaths were in patients with a PTV of more than 700 cc. The third question I would like to ask is, should we treat patients with large volume radically? We know that um, uh, radical intent treatment obviously leads to better control, but we have to take into account, obviously, uh, the impact on normal tissues. And we have very compelling data from the meta-analysis comparing uh, concurrent to sequential chemoradiotherapy and an RTOG pool data analysis of seven trials that improve local control correlates with improved overall survival. And clearly, um, you know, by treating patients radically, um, there is a better chance compared to palliative treatment to achieve this uh, local control and therefore to improve survival. And actually, um, you know, many of you will be aware of the uh, very sobering results of the National Lung Cancer Audit that showed that a th- two-thirds of the patients with stage 3 disease receive either palliative treatment or no treatment at all. So, clearly difficult to achieve local control and and improvements in survival. Now, the good news from the uh, 2019 audit is that there was an increase in the patients treated with chemoradiotherapy in the use of concurrent treatments So, 54% compared to 34% in 2016. But sadly, only 6% of all stage 3 actually receive concurrent chemoradiotherapy, radiotherapy And also from this National Lung Cancer Data Audit, we have no data on GTV or PTV, and it would be very interesting uh, and informative to know whether these patients who are not treated at all or receive palliative treatment are those with large volume disease. So the message is clearly no or palliative treatment means no, no local control and means poor survival. My fourth question is, how should we treat large volumes and what is the impact of advanced techniques such as uh, IMRT? So I probably don't need to tell this very distinguished audience that IMRT compared to 3D conformal radiotherapy uh, achieves more conformality particularly to complex geometric targets and also a sharper radiation dose gradients between tumour and normal tissues Uh, resulting in uh, lower uh, toxicity. And if you're interested to read more about IMRT, this is a nice paper from uh, our group, which uh, uh, demonstrated the advantages of IMRT, uh, as you can see in the left hand side column, which are very pertinent to those patients with large volume disease. Now obviously we can use fixed beam IMRT or we can use volumetric uh, IMRT and you can see on this slide um, a comparison in a patient who has very large volume disease of IMRT versus full arc versus partial arc and I'm sorry the red boxes have moved but essentially uh, with uh, IMRT um, well with with arc therapy actually the percentage of dose that covers 95% of the volume can be increased compared to uh, fixed beam IMRT and with regards to dose to the normal tissues we can achieve a reduction in the dose delivered to the spinal cord, dose delivered to the heart reduction in V30 and V40 with full arc partial arc um, but that is at the expense as you will know of the low dose path so higher Dose delivered uh, to the lungs of a 5 the V10 will be higher, particularly with full arc uh, uh, volumetric therapy as opposed to uh, fixed beam IMRT. So what data do we have supporting the impact of the use of IMRT? So the best data available is from RTOG 0617. In this study, just under half the patients received IMRT And despite the fact that there were more unfavorable tumors in the IMRT group, as you can see from the table on the left-hand side, uh, larger PTV and also more patients with stage 3 disease in the IMRT group versus 3D conformal radiotherapy groups, so despite that, there were less patients developing grade three pneumonitis, and the dose to the heart, the heart B40 was lower in the IMRT group compared to the 3D conformal radiotherapy group. And what's also very reassuring is again, in spite of the unfavorable tumors in the IMRT group, no difference in progression free survival or overall survival. They also demonstrated that uh, fewer patients who received IMRT had clinically meaningful decline in quality of life when using the FACT lung cancer subscale with IMRT compared to 3D-conformal radiotherapy. And in this paper published in 2015, they demonstrated again in a multivariate analysis of overall survival that PTV is very uh, prognostic as well as the baseline quality of life score. Now, we presented at BTOC several years ago uh, data from uh, the Christie on the impact of the introduction of IMRT, and we've now updated this series, which has not been presented yet. So we now have over 12,000 patients, that's proper big data, treated between 2005 and 2020, grouped into three times periods. So the first time period was pre-IMRT, second one, we had some availability of IMRT and we selected patients based on volume of disease but also proximity to organs at risk such as the spinal cord and then third time period full access of IMRT and you can see a very big impact on the treatment intent uh, on the, in the graph on the left hand side, uh, a reduction in the proportion of patients treated palliatively and a big increase in a proportion of patients with stage three, one to three disease treated with curative intent radiotherapy, an increase from 40% to 83%. Um, and at the same time, we saw that uh, um, the volume of disease that we're treating over th- the free time periods has increased. So I guess now the big question is what is the impact on survival? And if you're interested in that, uh, we will presenting some data at BTOC 2022. Now, my fifth question is, can we improve the outcome of patients with large volume using advanced radiotherapy technologies? And that is my last question. So one of the uh, exciting areas is MR-guided radiotherapy. So uh, MR-guided radiotherapy allows better soft tissue definition with the potential to uh, reduce the margins and therefore toxicity. But what is very exciting is the scope for frequent adaptive radiotherapy. So as illustrated by this animation, so there's a scope as a tumor reduces in volume to adapt to shape and reduce the, the volume treated. Now, clearly, this needs to be uh, the feasibility, but also the impact on the local control and toxicity needs to be tested in clinical trials. And then obviously we have two uh, proton centers in in the UK, the UCL proton center will be opening uh, this month or next month, I believe. And we do know from the phase two study of proton versus photons done in the US that we can reduce the dose to the heart with protons. So in terms of patients with large volume disease, we have two potential objectives with protons, could we reduce the dose to the heart, uh, which we know from our analysis and uh, others that it could have an impact on survival, but also could we reduce the integral dose, which could reduce the risk of severe lymphopenia, which we know is an adverse prognostic factor. So a very nice uh, uh, study, planning study, comparing standard plans with uh, protons and photon plans, Um, applying some cardiac uh, avoidance strategy was presented by Catherine Banfield at Estro 2021 showing that a dose reduction to the cardiac avoidance area, which is the top of the heart, can be achieved with both protons and and photons. The D1CC to the cardiac avoidance area was not significantly lower when using protons, but the mean dose to to that area was. Now, in terms of large volume uh, uh, disease, we also have to bear in mind that the proximity of the ITV to the cardiac avoidance area dictates whether a dose reduction can be achieved with protons. And you know, if you have a large tumor, it's often central, close to the heart, and it is not always possible to uh, spare that region with protons. So we have to bear that in mind. So this is my conclusion slide. Patients with large volume disease clearly have a poor prognosis, but also we know that without treatment, patients will progress and die. So we have to make sure that curative intent treatment where appropriate is delivered uh, to patients to achieve better local control and improve survival. We have a number of unanswered questions and unfortunately I don't have uh, studies that really uh, address specifically in patients with large volume disease, whether it's best to give sequential or concurrent chemo-radiotherapy given toxicity concerns, and then an important toxicity of duvalumab patients who have large volume disease compared to have lower volume disease, and as you will know, we have no data on that from Pacific, as the, um, uh, the, the the radiotherapy. Uh, dose volume uh, data was not collected. We have a lot of hope that this data uh, will be included in Pacific R and presented at future meetings. And then finally, the future is for the integration of MR-guided radiotherapy and adaptive radiotherapy in the management of these patients and possibly there may be a role for protons as well. Thank you very much for your attention.
0: Thank you very much, Corinne, um, and for taking us through those uh, key important questions uh, so succinctly. Um, What do you think is the main barrier in the UK for getting these large volumes treated? We know that IMRT and VMAT is now technically available um, in all of the centres. Is it, um, you know, what is it we need to do to see these large volumes getting considered for radical radiotherapy, whether that's concurrent or, or otherwise?
2: Yes, thanks. This is an important question. So we, we know that, um, you know, IMRTs now more widely available, but how you know, is it, is it used routinely in all patients? But I guess the biggest uh, issue in my mind is patient selection. So when patients are discussed in, in MDTs um, and seen in, in, in clinic, um, you know, some consultants may decide to go around the route of palliative radiotherapy as opposed to to, uh, radical radiotherapy and that is based on very subjective factors sometimes. So for me the biggest issue is the issue of training and you know I think having perhaps you know discussions through you know or other forums but you know uh, Matthew also mentioned uh, the PRONO platform where we may be able to share Uh, cases is probably the way forward. I think for the centres where perhaps people tend to be a little bit more conservative, they need to see um, examples of patients with large volume disease who can be, one, safely treated so the dose to the uh, organs at risk can be uh, met, but also understand that some of these patients will have long-term survival. So, you know, I think the data presented from the Netherlands, for example, is very interesting because I think there's a belief that these patients will never achieve long-term survival, and you know, but it's clearly not the case.
0: And then just, just one final question, if I may come in from the audience, asking specifically what cardiac constraints do you use for your stage um, 3 patients?
2: Yes, yeah, so at the moment we we, we use a, a sort of V30 and V40 cardiac constraint, but this is all about to change. So, following the uh, the data that we have published in the last few years, and we now have defined this area at the base of the heart that includes the conduction system, the origin of the coronary arteries. So, we now understand that this is the area that we need to spare. And we have a um, a program grant that's been awarded by NIHR that will allow us to introduce a new dose constraint for this area to all of our patients. So that will start um, next year. Um, And based on the uh, data presented by uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Alan McWilliam, uh, will have a constraint of 19.5 gray in 2 to seven, five gray per fraction or 23 gray in, in using two gray per fraction. And another OAR to
0: learn to contour.
2: Well, that's the thing. So we're also looking at the automatic contouring of this structure because we are conscious that uh, not only it will not necessarily be that straightforward, but you know, also people are, ve- are very busy and that's you know, adding something else to their workload.
0: No, that's fantastic. Thank you very much for, for, for that. Um, and uh, yeah, more to come. Another advert for uh, attending BTOG 2022. Um, so thank you very much, Corinne. Um, I'd now like to move on to our, our, our third speaker this evening, um, who's a colleague of mine here at the Marsden, Dr. Liam Welsh, um, who is um, yeah an absolute guru in all things neuro-oncology and is going to talk to us today about um, the all-important SRS that we refer our patients for.
3: Thank you very much, Liam. Thank you, Fiona, and um, thank you to the organisers for asking me to talk. Um, so I'm going to uh, just uh, go for my disclosures. Nothing uh, that's going to influence what I'm saying tonight. Um, I want to cover four areas. Um, patient selection, which is a big topic, and uh, maybe there would be some questions about that. Um, specifically, then, um, radiosurgery for brain metastases in the oncogene uh, addicted population. Um, uh, Delivery platforms, which is, um, uh, again, a bone of contention that um, never seems to disappear. Um, But maybe we can say something constructive about that um, and reassuring about that. Uh, And then uh, some brief um, remarks on uh, radiosurgery complications. As we treat more patients, we'll see more uh, complications arising. And also the difficult issue of how to assess response. Um, so um, I don't really, I, I'm sure, need to highlight to this audience the um, significant problem that brain metastases represent in non-small cell lung cancer. Um, they that This population forms 40% of the workload in the uh, radiosurgery service that, that we uh, deliver, uh, and that's a, a common theme across radiosurgery centres. Um, the uh, uh, brain metastases being a specific issue in the oncogene-addicted uh, population, uh, which we'll come on to so um patient selection um so uh, radiosurgery services in england were recommissioned by nhs england um, in 2015. 17 centers were commissioned to provide access to intracranial radiosurgery recognizing that access had been inequitable and patchy um, this process i think has uh, resulted in an improvement of access um, centers went through uh, a benchmarking process a little bit uh, like that that Matthew outlined for uh, thoracic sabre um, but uh, different uh, centers will use different platforms and there is still a variation in practice um, my own uh, practice covers um, two neuroscience networks So we've got a cotchman population Um, over four and a half million. We've treated more than 1,400 patients um, since we were recommissioned in May 2016. And as I say, about 40% of all those patients have non-small cell lung cancer. So as we have um, increased access to radiosurgery, which was part of the plan, um, naturally there's been a decline in the use of whole brain radiotherapy. These are um, data from the Marsden. Um, The whole brain still has a place Um, So as you can see, it hasn't disappeared entirely, um, but there has been, I think, an entirely correct crossover. Um, So uh, in terms of um, who can access the service, uh, NHS England stipulated uh, these uh, specific criteria, uh, which are pragmatic uh, and I think quite generous. Um, They're not really based in hard evidence, uh, but nevertheless, there needed to be some basis for deciding which patients would uh, potentially benefit from an expensive and complex intervention. So, we've got a performance status category, we've got a life expectancy greater than six months, as estimated by the um, primary tumor. Uh, site oncology team looking after the patient Um, we need to have uh, the the situation where the extracranial disease is either absent or controllable obviously that's something that is quite soft but essentially that means we've got to have at least a further line of systemic therapy available Um, and then there's a stipulation on the total volume of brain disease that should be less than 20 cc's in total but as you'll notice nothing about the total number of brain metastases So this has been a perennial issue in radiosurgery. How many is too many? Um, Nobody knows the answer to that, I don't think. There has just really been a technical limitation. Um, These are some old data from the uh, Japanese Gamma Knife Society um, treating patients with up to 10 brain metastases. Uh, Three quarters of the patients in this study had non-small cell lung cancer. So what this very clearly shows is that having only a single brain metastasis confers some survival benefit, but having... Uh, more than one, it doesn't really seem to matter how many more than one, it doesn't make much difference. Uh, and I think that is the reality. So stipulating a sort of specific arbitrary upper bound on the number that can be treated um, is, is always going to be problematic. And it's really just a technical issue rather than an oncological issue. Um, so uh, my own experience, these are, these are data that need updating. Um, and I'm sorry, I didn't have time to do that for this meeting. So they they, they relate to Uh, uh, the situation at Marsden up to two years ago. Um, So what we can see here is overall survival for uh, non-small cell lung cancer patients treated with radiosurgery on the left, and then stratified by the number of brain metastases. So very similar to the Japanese data. Having one is prognostically good. How many more than one doesn't really matter. Um, Volume uh, makes a bit of a difference. Um, So having uh, small volume uh, disease uh, is, is prognostically favorable and larger volume diseases, one might expect less, less favorable. So volume matters more than number. Uh, and obviously, um, you, you know, the, uh, the, NHS England criteria make some allowance for that. So, um, if we turn our attention then to the oncogene addicted subset, um, so just passing over this very quickly, because you'll be more familiar with these data than I am, but essentially what we have now, um, for the, uh, Alka-rearranged patients, uh, to some extent the ROS1 patients, is highly active uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, which uh, in the first-line setting show very high response rates. So with brigatinib here, uh, in this study, maybe a response rate for in the brain of about 80%, um, and uh, with electinib, even better than that, maybe 90-odd percent, uh, and then a brain-protecting effect with patients without brain metastases on electinib. So potent intracranial activity Um, and obviously this is now a consideration in selecting patients for uh, radiosurgery and this is essentially unresolved. Um, So for our own uh, patients who have had radiosurgery for uh, L-positive non-small cell lung cancer with brain metastases, we're seeing a better than average survival and there's uh, data that have um, uh, been seen in other centres as well Um, so uh, you, you know, this is an important population who can potentially do extremely well um, with a combination of um, uh, uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor with maybe radiosurgery held in reserve as necessary. So that's now uh, a very special population um, for the EGFL mutant. Um, things um, are, are slightly different. Um, these are old data that suggested that upfront radiosurgery was better than upfront TKI for patients with brain metastases, but of course. That, the, these data predate um, the uh, advent of osimertinib, um, with, as you know, again, uh, a very high level of intracranial um, activity on the first line setting. Uh, so bringing then um, uh, the, the, the role of um, osimertinib and, and radiosurgery uh, in, into question. Um, our own data uh, for survival after radiosurgery for metastases in the EGFR mutant population, um, somewhat less favorable than ALK. Um, partly just reflecting the difficulty uh, when, when disease does progress on uh, osomertinib. And radiosurgery may have a specific role in that situation to deal with progression in the brain. Um, so um, this is a, a, an interesting case in point that came through our MDT recently. Um, so this is... Um, uh, a relatively young patient um, who is presented with a synchronous brain metastasis is very eloquently located uh, near the uh, left motor strip with a lot of edema uh, and obvious uh, neurological symptoms. So the question arises, do we, uh, uh, in this instance, with uh, Uh, an EGFR mutation, uh, treat with upfront TKI, with ozimertinib, or do we go with radiosurgery? So in the end, this patient was treated with TKI, um, and uh, we will see how things go. But I think with a response rate of the order of 90-odd percent, that is uh, comparable or even better than we may see with radiosurgery. Um, And so I think that is uh, an entirely reasonable situation. Of course, when we're facing this kind of development uh, for a patient who's on TKI, the considerations are different. So it is quite complex. Um, in the first line setting, we, see, we we clearly do need a study to help us work out how to integrate radiosurgery into systemic therapy uh, for patients with oncogenic driving mutations. So we've really needed a study to address this. So we're, we're fortunate in as much as I think this um, uh, very flexible and broad scope ETOP uh, strike trial uh, may help uh, address this. So this will encompass patients with non-small cell lung cancer with driver mutations, um, who will um, be allocated either to um, uh, systemic therapy uh, or systemic therapy with radiosurgery. So we're really hopeful that that will open uh, and help us understand how to integrate these treatments together. So um, uh, moving on to delivery platforms. um, So uh, in my practice, we primarily use a CyberKnife platform. We have two of these machines now, and we've been using uh, the one in the picture now for uh, 10 years. It's uh, proved to be very flexible uh, and of course it can be used for SABRE as well as intracranial targets. Um, uh, I think uh, all radiosurgery centres potentially benefit from having access to a dedicated radiosurgery platform. It's, but these are particularly useful when treating small volume sites of disease with high accuracy. So that could be a gamma knife or a cyber knife. But um, uh, we'll come on to Linac-based platforms in a moment because um, there are uh, uh, means by which we can deliver high quality radiosurgery using standard gantry based uh, linux. So essentially all centers should be able to deliver multiple um, uh, metastases brain radiosurgery. This is a case in point. This is a 26 year old man um, with 17 small volume brain metastases uh, with a ROS1 Uh, mutated non-small cell lung cancer underlying. Um, The total volume of disease here is uh, only 4 cc's. It's quite hard to see most of the metastases, that's sort of the point, Um, but some of them are in quite eloquent locations. Um, This patient received radiosurgery to all 17 sites, Um, 658 beams on the cyber knife with a three and a half hour delivery time was extremely well tolerated and this patient was someone I treated um, uh, more than five years ago and remains fit and well. So Um, Radiosurgery um, uh, can be highly effective. Um, This is an example of that patient's plan, uh, showing the hedgehog in the top left, which represents a cluster of beams that were used, and you can see some of the dose distribution. Um, So um, the the, the treatment um, is ideal in this kind of scenario, um, but for a young FIT patient, they're easily able to tolerate a a substantial delivery uh, time Uh, And of course, it leaves a lot of flexibility for the future. Here's um, our our old, um, well, this was our oldest, LINAC, um, uh, but it was able to deliver some of the most advanced radiotherapy, um, we're in combination with a brain lab exact track system that can be retrofitted to pretty much any LINAC, uh, which gives a real-time uh, image guidance system, which in conjunction with some uh, software can allow us to use multiple non-coplanar arcs to deliver very rapid treatment to multiple brain metastases. This platform can now deliver treatment for 20 plus metastases in less than 40 minutes. Um, it uses, uh, as I say, dynamic non-coplanar arcs to treat multiple metastases in sweeps of the gantry. Um, and it has a pretty much an automated planning system, uh, making it quite easy to use. Um, and this uh, was um, uh, used with a, a machine with only a five millimeter MLC. So you don't even need a micro MLC um, because of the dynamic nature of the treatment delivery. It's not all that sensitive to MLC leaf width. Um, so really, if, if you can, um, uh, you know, get that to work on an ancient BIMAC like that, um, really any center uh, with a bit of investment can deliver radiosurgery. Um, uh, in some situations, uh, the dosimetry won't be quite as advantageous as, say, Gamma Knife or CyberKnife. But for many patients, it will be delivering uh, a very good treatment. Um, there is a dose response element to radiosurgery. These are ancient data demonstrating uh, just that. Uh, with uh, a marginal dose of 24 gray, achieving. Uh, maybe a uh, long-term local control rate of about 70%, so not quite as good as some of the uh, TKI response rates that we've seen. But this um, can be quite durable, as you can see um, from the data. Um, In terms of uh, the risk, as we escalate dose, we deliver more dose to the brain tumor tissue immediately adjacent uh, to the uh, uh, brain next to the uh, uh, target uh, and of course then there is a risk of causing damage or brain radiation necrosis um, that is correlated with the local V12 and so when we're planning uh, radiosurgery we look at the local V12, this is more or less a per lesion metric um, where you've got uh, metastases clustered together, we may see some bridging and then we do need to look at the local V12 in the cluster so this needs some attention and you can see the V12 here is associated with the risk of radiation necrosis in these data from Giuseppe Minetti in Rome. So this is something that needs to be um, uh, looked at and sometimes we do need to reduce those to accommodate um, the the risk of radiation necrosis. Um, Just to show an example of of what can be done with a pragmatic approach, um, uh, the the top two scans here show brain mri scan for a newly diagnosed patient a 52 year old woman with a a wild type non-small cell lung cancer with a hemorrhagic brain metastasis and uh, a number of small volume additional brain metastases, um, 17 in total Um, that hemorrhagic lesion it's very difficult to discern what's blood and what's tumor the lesion itself in total is about 20 cc's the patient had been turned down for treatment at another center Um, But we felt uh, we could uh, treat her using a fractionated radiosurgery approach, which is readily deliverable on the CyberKnife or Linac platform. Um, So we did so, three-fraction radiosurgery, um, including that hemorrhagic site, just treating the entirety of the volume. Um, And the result uh, there at three months is shown below. The patient is actually entirely well, um, coming off steroids with no deficit, uh, with significant regression in the hemorrhagic site, and presumably the tumour in there somewhere also regressing. Um, So just really to illustrate that um, even uh, difficult situations can be tackled. um, And if you don't get a sensible answer um, or or, or a satisfactory answer from your local MDT, um, it can be worth asking around um, because, uh, you know, experience does vary. So um, radiosurgery complications. First thing I just want to mention is scan frequency. So for patients with brain metastases, it's worth monitoring. Uh, this is a patient with an EGFR, mutated non-small cell lung cancer, who developed a pontine metastasis. You can see there on the right. Um, that is easily treatable with single-fraction surgery. Um, but it's best treated when it's small, as you may appreciate. So NICE uh, have produced some recommend, uh, recommended uh, follow-up guidelines. Uh, so three-monthly brain MRI, I think, is right. Um, And I think really uh, for uh, the longer term, that is probably the right thing. Although NICE have recommended backing off a little bit as time goes on. But I think the evidence for that is weak. But three monthly scans, I think, um, is is sensible. Um, Problem solving. um, Well, sometimes the scans that we do at follow up are difficult to interpret. Uh, This is a patient with a right occipital metastasis. Um, this was uh, uh, treated with radiosurgery that's the um, state of the disease at the time of treatment in September 2017 Um, so the the following year we've got a situation on the right has that is that recurrence or is that radiation necrosis can be very difficult to determine Um, so uh, a technique called contrast clearance analysis um, can be helpful this looks at the kinetics of contrast clearance uh, on follow-up brain mri scans essentially we do a post-contrast scan five minutes and one hour after uh, injection of contrast um, radiation necrosis will show delayed clearance whereas post uh, tumour will show rapid clearance and these are colour coded on a subtraction difference map uh, from the MRIs at five minutes and one hour. That's shown here. So blue is bad as per histology. um, And in this particular case, we can see that that tumour was showing rapid contrast clearance compatible with progression or recurrence. um, And that was confirmed then uh, when the patient underwent neurosurgery for resection of the metastasis so a local failure that was confirmed before surgery so in summary there are now potentially effective systemic therapy options for uh, for all groups of uh, non small cell lung cancer patients but particularly those with driver mutations and that needs to be taken into account and so really to manage patients and to get the optimal selection we've got to work together that means the lung mdt working together with the neuro oncology mdt Um, to decide how best to proceed and integrate the available treatment options um, on an individualised basis for each patient. There are many open questions, not least of which is the timing of radiosurgery and how to integrate with um, targeted therapies and uh, immunotherapy, which we've not touched on. There's the open question of screening um, and uh, the, the remaining outstanding role of does whole brain still have a place at all. So I'll stop there and take any questions.
0: Thank you very much, Liam. Um, That's fantastic. Um, It's lovely to see all the advances with SRS pretty much replacing most of whole brain radiotherapy and now with systemic therapies getting so good, possibly moving SRS out of the the frontline space um, and clearly highlighting that ETOP strike trial uh, will be very interesting. Um, haven't got um, any questions in from the audience as yet, but knowing how much we rely on the the follow-up and your interpretation of Fancy scans. Um, how widely available, given the resources of asking patients to hang around for an hour? How widely available across the UK are these tram scans?
3: Well, there are other centres that have introduced them. Uh, I know that they're using them, for example, in Cambridge and uh, Plymouth. Um, uh, of of the um, types of advanced imaging that can be used to try to distinguish between local recurrence and radiation necrosis, they're relatively resource. Light traditionally perfusion imaging or even spectroscopy um, has been done. And that is really resource intensive and most centers just can't get that done. Uh, And then the neuroradiology um, uh, input required to interpret the imaging is considerable. Um, So a TRAM scan will tie up a scanner for an hour because typically there isn't time to get another scan done um, between the two imaging sessions. So it does lock down the scanner for an hour. But other than that, um, the technology is just some software. Um, The scan sequences are just very standard volumetric um, contrast uh, uh, sequences that can be done on any MRI, Uh, and the software is largely automated. Um, So it is something that is logistically relatively straightforward to do, and um, we've been able to introduce these at the Marsden without any great difficulty in it an imaging department that is extremely busy and under a lot of pressure as you know. Um, so I think as advanced imaging goes, it's it's pretty manageable. Um, uh, of course it's not perfect and um, there are uh, questions of interpretation. We found these scans pretty useful for non small cell lung cancer patients. They are much less useful for patients with, say, um, mucinous uh, GI tumors, where actually the tumors intrinsically show delayed contrast. And so um, it's just not useful. So you can get um, false negatives. Um, so, uh, you, you know, they're not perfect, but then nothing is. And um, we, we have found them quite helpful. Uh, in situations where we have uh, delivered a lot of treatment and we're not sure you know whether we are looking at a problem or not and we've often had reassurance from the tram scans which has been borne out over time so um, so they're not generally available um, but they could be I think quite widely available um, if there was interest.
0: Thank you very much Liam there is one question for the audience but it might not be fair for you Liam as it's to do with the management of lung disease in general. I'm not sure if Matthew or Corinne are still on the line, but should patients with one or two brain metastases but otherwise radically treatable thoracic disease be treated radically with brain SRS and then radical um, thoracic radiotherapy? Um, I see Matthew turning his mind and Corinne. They're both popping back. Do either of you want to take that question?
1: My (laughs) suggestion would be consider a saron trial. (laughs) Um, metastatic disease. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I, I love your answer Matthew I think the sarin require sarin trial requires you to have at least one other met outside of the brain but um right. but yeah absolutely that needs to be at the forefront um Corinne do you treat these patients with radical thoracic radiotherapy
2: yes definitely so uh, yeah we would generally uh, start with the SRS and then give uh, you know at, uh, at the same time plan the radical treatment to the thorax but uh, yes and and if a patient is PS01, you know, would consider concurrent chemoradiotherapy uh, in this situation if it's uh, stage three within the thorax, if it's earlier stage within the thorax, of course, whatever is appropriate, you know, could be, it could be Sabre or and whatever if, is right. If, if,
0: what about if this was a, a mutant patient, whether it's Alki, GFR or ROS1?
2: Yes. Well, that is the tricky question, isn't it? And again, we right, I back added that bit,
0: Corinne, just for a bit of spice at the end.
2: Yes. Well, it's, you know, I think as Liam has outlined, you know, there's a lot of uncertainties regarding the sequencing of these treatments. So there is no doubt that, uh, you know, they, they should be treated with the appropriate targeted therapy. Um, but where SRS fits in and where thoracic radiotherapy fits in and in what order, I think is the tricky bit. What I understand from, you know, certainly many discussions I have attended is that nowadays medical oncologists quite like to start the systemic treatment first, see what the response is, uh, and then potentially offer these local therapies a little bit later. Um, so, you know, obviously we have the, um, you know, the strike study with, in the context of immunotherapy and other studies, similar studies were discussed in the context of EGFR, TKIs. But where thoracic radiotherapy fits in is a bit more unclear.
0: That's fantastic. So we've got the trials, some open, some to come, kind of in all in this space, um, but still some grey areas. That's fantastic. Thank you very much to um, my three speakers. And I'm sorry this is not an in-person meeting, but look forward to seeing you and I'm sure members of the audience um, soon. And just before um, we head off, I just want to highlight um, the next upcoming um webinars we've got for BTOG. So tomorrow morning, if you haven't got any other plans, we'd love to have you at the BTOG Masterclass, leading uh, your lung cancer team. Um, And then the next BTOG webinar is in a few weeks, Wednesday, the 10th of November, which is one of the BTOG essential uh, updates, uh, supporting patients with thoracic malignancies. Um, So thank you very much to all of our panel and the audience for staying late tonight. I wish you all a lovely weekend. Thank you.